We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve with Sense Fidelity. I'm coming at you with Christopher Ferrari. If you don't know his name, I can't help you. Uh, Christopher <laughs> Ferrari, who's authored quite a few books, including Liberty to God That Failed. Just look up his name, buy all his books, you'll become a better person because of it. I even enjoyed the EWTN one. I thought it was a great apologetic book for uh, the rosary and uh, infallibility, by the way. I got a lot of flack for that one. I'm sure you did. I, I've been, I, wrote, I, I wrote that with uh, considerable trepidation. <laughs> well, you know, it turned out to be basically vindicated by some of their own hiring and firing decisions. Yes. And the scandals that ensued as to some of the figures I profile in the book. So no. I guess it, it turned out okay. Yes. Uh, also, The Great Facade, which you got volume two coming out or up or... Well, The Great Facade uh, and Liberty, The God That Failed, those are the two books that are really selling on, on Amazon right now, so I'm shamelessly plugging both of them. <laughs> but it, it, it actually, one book, Liberty, The God That Failed, deals with the crisis of political modernity. It shows the origins of the modern idea of liberty, its progress in this country, and basically it explains how we got to where we are now, where 300 million people are wearing masks and are supposed to be vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, so that's the crisis in the state. And then The Great Facade, which is in its second edition, is a really exhaustive examination of the crisis in the church, how it began, how it progressed, and where we are today, including the current pontificate that one very mainstream commentator has called disastrous. <laughs> and another one has said we ought to be praying for a merciful end to it through imprecatory prayers. Yeah. No. <laughs> I won't name these two. I don't want to embarrass them. No, I, I know we're priests. But they're that very mainstream. It, it just shows the crisis has reached the point where uh, Catholics are getting woke in the right way. They're figuring out that something seems to have gone radically wrong somewhere along the line over the last 60 years. And now we're reaching the uh, terminal stage of that disorder. The same disorder that Cardinal Ratzinger could call the continuing process of decay since the council. So, it seems like everything is waking converging. Up to the obvious. It seems like all that's converging, the state and the church, into what we got yes. going on now. Yeah, well, as the church goes, so goes the world. You know, I'm thinking of a, an encyclical back in 1951 by Pius XII, Evangelii Preconis. In that encyclical, he talks about the great success of the missionary efforts around the world, mm -hmm. which, by the way, disappeared after the Second Vatican Council. And he says, this is great news because we're in a struggle right now. The world is divided into two camps, for Christ or against Christ. And this struggle between the two camps will end either in the salvation of the world or in its dire destruction. Now, he said that in 1951. What would you think about today's yeah. church? <laughs> I, I was thinking of Belloc, his quote of, uh, you either have Catholicism or chaos. Well, that's, yeah, Christ or chaos. Catholicism or chaos. In fact, uh, uh, 
uh, Brownson writing, the great Catholic convert, Orestes Brownson, writing in the late 1800s, basically said that Catholicism is necessary to sustain liberty. Uh -huh. I mentioned him in the book, Liberty of the God That Failed. He makes an argument against the Protestants who protest that what you're really asking for, Mr. Brownson, is rule by the papacy. And he says, well, thank you for making my case. <laughs> the problem with Protestantism is you have no authority that has the final word on matters of faith and morals. And so you descend into moral chaos, the rule of the majority, even in matters of morality, which is why you can't have liberty, truly, in the true sense, in America. What you have instead is chaos. And what, what do we have right now? The, the terminal stage of moral and social chaos. Which kind of goes into what we were going to talk about is the morality of a certain, uh, how would you say, society's version of the Eucharist, it sounds like. Yes, Everyone, the unholy communion. Yeah, yeah. The the jab, the vaccine, the uh, vaccine, experimental. The jab. Yeah, the experimental injections going on. The well, morality the, in it. I mean, think about the nonsensical nature of this, even, even if, aside from the moral question. They're seriously proposing to vaccinate the entire Western world, all age groups, with an experimental vaccine that has only an emergency use authorization and is already producing dangerous side effects and does not promise to stop the spread of the virus, but only to alleviate symptoms. Now, anyone who says that this insane initiative is necessary for the common good is just basically uh, making a, a, an insupportable case uh, for the vaccine because it, it has nothing to do with the common good. It doesn't even promise to alleviate, at this point, individual symptoms. Now we're told that it's not effective, perhaps, after six months. Maybe you will need a booster shot for the so-called variants. And never in the history of pandemics have entire populations been inoculated. And we know from the statistics that even with the inflated COVID-19 death numbers, we're talking about a virus that has an infection fatality rate, total infections over fatalities of two-tenths of one percent. That's, that's with a very small uh, number of infections compared to what the total number probably is. The current estimates of infections are probably wrong by many orders of magnitude. I would bet that 60 to 70 million Americans have been infected by this virus, which is typical for a flu season, by the way. If you look at the epidemiological statistics for flu, you'll find that some, something like 60 million Americans are in particularly bad flu season are infected with the flu, and upwards of 60% of cases are asymptomatic. I think it ranges between 20% uh -huh. and 60% asymptomatic cases. So if this follows the same course as the flu, in terms of seroprevalence, as they call it, you could be talking about 60 million infections in this country. When you, when you raise the number of infections, I mean, even who has indicated this? That who has suggested that the number of infections is actually 10 times higher than thus far estimated. So if you, if you multiply the current estimate of worldwide infections by 10, you end up with an infection fatality rate of 0.14, which is pretty much the flu. Yeah. So why are we vaccinating the entire world for this? Yeah, 2018 numbers the, in the U.S. was higher than last uh, 2020 in deaths for the flu. Uh, Italy's numbers for respiratory infections in the year prior than last during the height in March was higher than what happened when the shutdowns happened. Uh, yeah, so, so when you're talking about the morality of the vaccine, you don't even get the first base because you can't even show there's a proportional reason 
for using it. I would put the proportionality argument first. Uh-huh. Let's assume it was a life and death scenario. Uh, some people say the rabies vaccine is abortion derived. Actually, it isn't. But let's assume it is for purposes of argument. The child gets bitten by a rabbit animal. And if he doesn't get the rabies vaccine, the child will die. Now, am I going to sit here and tell the parent, well, you must let your child die? Well, of course not, because there's some proportionality there. So although it's not necessarily moral, even in that case, to use the vaccine, it's excusable. Why is it excusable? The Vatican document from 2005, which considers the question of remote cooperation with evil in case of vaccines, puts it in terms of moral coercion. And the document actually says, that in cases where it's life or death, unless you have this only available vaccine, which may be abortion derived, in that case, you're making a decision against your conscience under coercion. So it's still a morally objectionable act, but it's involuntary because the industry, the pharmaceutical industry has left you with no alternative. They literally put a gun to your head. If it's a life or death scenario. Yeah. But it's not a life or death scenario with COVID-19. Yeah. With 99.99% recover under the age of, was it 70? Uh, yeah. You don't need something to, you don't need a jab for that. You have a and bigger even over chance. The age of 70. Yeah, even, even if you're over 70, and even if you have multiple comorbidities, even if you're the worst possible candidate for this infection, you still have a 96% survival rate. So even that narrow segment of the population, the odds are overwhelmingly in your favor. I don't see any argument for proportionality at any level of usage for this for these abortion-derived vaccines. And just to throw in the word dangerous, since we're hearing from clerics too that this thing is safe, the word dangerous means that I go I just use this from a Google lookup. Able or likely to cause harm or injury. And unless somebody is not looking at the VARS, uh, the VARS site, looks like there's a lot of harm and injury, and that's just 1% of the reportings according to a Harvard study. It's already clear that we have far more adverse events per 100,000 people with this vaccine or with these vaccines than with any previous vaccine. Why? Well, because the previous vaccines went through the usual approval process. Some of them were struck out as candidates because of the adverse reactions. And that process involved years and years of testing before it was finally approved. And even those vaccines cause adverse events if they're all the rigorous approvals. Well, these vaccines are still in the experimental usage stage. They literally are not approved for use uh, as a treatment by the FDA. It's an emergency use authorization only. So we're seeing all of these adverse events, blood clotting disorders, particularly in women of childbearing age, uh, and what happens is, as someone explained it to me, who's an expert in, in immunology, uh, the virus is keyed to certain things in the alphabet of your genome. So uh, the explanation given was, let's assume the virus sees something that's like one of the letters in the alphabet, but it happens to be your liver. Uh-huh. It's going to attack your liver. Well, we see the, with these adverse reactions that it's attacking blood vessels, one of the vaccines. The Johnson & Johnson is attacking blood vessels, causing uh, clotting and mm-hmm. thrombosis, cerebral thrombosis, yeah. strokes. So why would anyone want anything to do with this vaccine, even in a high-risk group? But the idea that 18-year-olds and 30-year-olds will be rushing to get this vaccine, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Not only rushing, they're giddy. They're putting TikTok videos yeah. out. Oh, it's here. 
<laughs> I'm running to get my jab. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was uh, recently in Greenville, South Carolina on a case, and uh, I was walking by the river in Greenville, and they had these huge posters up, blow-up photos of a fire chief and a female firefighter. The female firefighter and the fire chief had their sleeves rolled up, and on their arms were the Band-Aids. Uh-huh which is like the ashes on Ash Wednesday. Mm-hmm. You see, you have your band-aid, which means that you've, you've been subjected to the holy jab, and now you're part of the COVID cult. I call them COVIDiacs. Yes. Other people call them COVIDians. I prefer COVIDiacs because it... It's all the same religion. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, it also connotes, uh, connotes an element of mania. These people are maniacs. Yeah. They're absolute maniacs. I, right outside this window, I see people walking by in the bright sunshine, in a big wide thoroughfare, wearing masks uh-huh. outdoors. Why? Young people too. Absolute nonsense. And and no one seems able to understand this by an argument from reason. They're impervious to reason. No. Yeah. I mean, my brother works out at a, a gym in Baltimore, and we're both exercise science majors. And they tell him that he has to wear a mask on. Going uh, that goes against everything the ACSM has ever said about breathing. <laughs> working out in high intensity activities. And yet- oh, you know what I, what I saw the other day, I happened to be a, a tennis player. So I went out to play tennis at the local public courts here in Richmond. And I'm on the tennis court and suddenly buses pull up. A bunch of high school students get out, high school tennis team, boys and girls. They get out on the court and they play tennis wearing masks outdoors. Mm-hmm. Now, if that is not a pseudoscientific superstition, I don't know what would be. And yet the entire society is plagued now by this pseudoscience with its pseudoscientific, superstitious, non-science-based ideas like everyone has to wear a mask, everyone has to wear two masks, you have to wear masks indoors, you have to wear masks outdoors, we all have to be vaccinated. None of this is based on science. This is just a form of collective lunacy. I've never seen anything like it. And I don't know how people have bought into it. You know, you, it's almost like they're sitting in the back corner. Hey, throw on two masks. They're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Fa- Fauci, who is nothing but a political hack. By the way, I spotted this character from the moment he set foot on that dais as part of the coronavirus task force. I wrote about this almost a year ago uh-huh. in April 2020. And I said, isn't it curious how when Fauci is not at the podium, the reporters get all antsy and they want to know where Fauci is. Fauci, Fauci, give us Fauci. Because they knew from the beginning that he was the enemy within the Trump administration. And Trump's biggest blunder was giving this clown, this this fake, this phony, this fraud, uh, this, uh, this publicity hound, uh-huh. any credibility at all. The guy's been wrong about everything. He was, he was right the first time around when he said, you don't really need masks. The only thing he got right. Yeah. Oops. Yeah, the, yeah. Only, the only person wronger was Neil Ferguson. Yeah. Well, Neil Ferguson provided the model that persuaded Trump because he listened to those idiots, uh-huh. the scarf lady, Deborah Burks, and Fauci, and actually believed that 2 million Americans would die from this virus. And by the way, 500,000 Americans have not died from COVID-19. Let's get rid of that myth right now. Look at table one of the CDC statistics on provisional death counts. Mm -hmm. And you will see that the provisional death count of 537 some odd thousand people 
includes cases that are only presumed or probable COVID cases and without a laboratory test, meaning the PCR test. Now, as we know, and the CDC has finally admitted, even when you have a PCR test, it isn't necessarily, and may, it may well be anything, uh, not be a COVID case. Mm-hmm. Depends upon the number of cycles you run. If, in fact, the number of cycles, as the CDC admitted in a recent memo, just updated um, about six, seven months ago, the, num- the uh, rate of infections is inversely proportional to the number of cycles you run. Mm-hmm. So the more cycles you run, the more false, false positives you have. Mm-hmm because you're finding the equivalent of nothing. Uh-huh. One uh, person, uh, I think it was a Dr. Mina of Columbia in the New York Times expose on this recently said, when you run more than 35 cycles, you're finding the equivalent of a hair in somebody's living room. And you're saying, because the hair is in the living room, Joe is there. Yes. It's absolute rubbish. So even with laboratory confirmation, the claim that people died of COVID is highly suspect. But this table one statistics say, This is with or without a PCR test. So how do we know how many people in that 537,000 figure actually died of COVID-19? The answer is we don't know, and we'll never know. The statistic is worthless. Even before you you bring up the uh, the 40 or 35 uh, repetitions for the PCR, Kerry Mullis, the creator, spoke of it going, you can find anything you want in this, in the PCR. The PCR test works. But it's how you do it. And it, right. shockingly, he died before all this happened. Yeah, if you look at the CDC memo on this, they say, look, if you get a weekly positive PCR test, this is what the memo says, uh, and there are no clinical symptoms, meaning all kinds of people with no symptoms are getting this stupid test, then what you have to do is retest them. And then if you don't have any clinical symptoms, but the retest is positive, then it's a COVID case. Uh-huh. But if the retest is not positive, then it's not a COVID test. So what they're saying is someone walks in, nothing wrong with him. No fever, no cough. He gets a PCR test that's weekly positive, but there's no clinical signs of illness. Oh, they retest him. Oh, this time it came out positive. Maybe they ran 60 cycles. That's a COVID case. The guy is not sick. (laughs) So all we hear about is, oh, there are 80,000 new cases today. No, there were not 80,000 new cases. There are 80,000 new phony baloney PCR test results of people who aren't sick. So even this, this case-demic that has replaced the pandemic is fake. We'll never know, and I'm not denying the lethality of the virus. It does kill certain mm-hmm. people in the vulnerable age group, but we'll never know because they fixed it. So that we'll never know how many people died simply because they contracted COVID-19. So in the context of all that, how do we get to the moral lyseity of these vaccines? We don't. I, I was gonna say, I'm tossing it to you. You're asking me? Yeah, no, uh, Gene, how, yeah, how you come up with an experimental injection that never has been tested on anything and has literally killed everything it's ever been in? Yeah, and then the other argument is, well, this is remote cooperation with evil. Baloney. It's not remote cooperation with evil. The cell lines are derived from numerous aborted babies. In other words, the cell lines are the product of cold-blooded murder of innocent children in the womb. And then the cell lines are cultivated. They're immortalized by certain techniques. And so the cell lines exist today. The cell lines are used either to test a vaccine or to generate copies of the spike protein in the mRNA vaccines. And then they're used then, therefore, as factories 
to produce the vaccine or to test the vaccine. So when you get that injection, you're talking about a presently operative evil. Now, if, if people think they're clever with this remote argument, remote cooperation argument, let's, put, let's give them a hypothetical. Uh-huh. Suppose it were conclusively established that these vaccines were derived from the murdered victims of the Nazi Holocaust. Because there was something special about the terror those people experienced that animated their genome in a certain way with enzymes. And so those cells were perfectly suited to this vaccine. Would they be defending this vaccine if the cell lines were derived from Holocaust victims? No chance. They wouldn't. Why? Why? Why the difference? And I'll tell you why. Because the people who were defending this vaccine as morally licit, while they would never defend it if it were the result of the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust, have no problem defending it when it's the result of abortion. Because whether they know it or not, they've implicitly accepted that abortion is a status quo. It doesn't excite their moral outrage, even if they protest against it. Uh-huh. They're willing to live with it. Yeah. So when you go to a clinic to get this injection, you're having injected into your system the product of what uh, St. John Paul II would call a uh, structure of sin. Uh-huh. It's a presently ongoing structure of sin based upon murder victim cells being exploited. And if you look at, go over to Rate Celli, there's a uh, father, uh, Leone, Don Leone, who gives 10 points of immorality that presently operate. Well, of course, the child was murdered, and the child's par- body parts were exploited for commercial purposes. Uh-huh. The child was de- denied a Christian burial. The child was denied baptism, uh-huh. and we don't know what happens to souls in that case. Uh, no one really knows the answer. Uh, and so he goes on and on. There's a list of 10 things that are wrong. The enterprise itself is intrinsically immoral. Uh-huh. So why would anyone want to participate in that when, as we've already shown in our discussion before, there's no morally proportionate reason for it. It just isn't a situation of life and death. And certainly isn't a situation for the protection of the common good when public authorities are admitting, hey, hey we never promised that this would limit viral transmission. In fact, you still have to wear your mask after you get vaccinated, and you still have to socially distance, yeah. nothing changes. So the vaccine doesn't really work for the common good. And you got to get your passport, and maybe you won't get the, you won't be able to go grocery shopping because you don't have your jab in you yet. Yeah, yeah. So they're going to make uh, your participation in an ongoing evil enterprise, exploiting the cells of the from the bodies of murder victims, they're going to make that a precondition for being a member of society. You're going to establish an underclass of the non-vaccinated. Someone has called it medical apartheid. I am waiting for parishes to mandate that you have to have that, to have, show the passport to get into a parish. Yeah, I don't understand why any Catholic would mount a labored defense of this vaccine regime. I just don't understand it. It's a mystery to me. Yeah, it's. I've seen bishops video themselves taking... The injection, which which they don't need. <laughs> They're not sick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I saw a doctor talk about that. What uh, asymptomatic? Uh, asymptomatic. We, that used, we never heard that before last year. We used to call that healthy. Yeah. Well, now that, there are two myths that undergird this whole COVID nineteen regime. Myth number one is that it threatens the general population. Uh-huh. Everyone is at risk. It floats in the air like a poison gas. 
You can breathe it in anywhere. The virus is omnipresent. It comes oh, like gremlins after 10 o'clock. <laughs> complete, yeah, complete nonsense. The other myth, which keeps masks on everybody and maintains this preposterous six-foot floating bubble zone around every human being in the Western world, the other myth is of asymptomatic transmission. Everybody's a carrier of the virus. You just have to presume that the entire population of the world is infected. Well, if you presume that the entire population of the United States is infected, then the infection fatality rate, 320 million over 537,000 deaths, you do the math, it's less than flu. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and, and again, those 537,000 deaths, a large number of them, who knows how large, I probably have nothing to do with COVID-19. You know what? I have a personal example. My father, mm -hmm. 96 years old, they locked him into a nursing home under Governor Murphy in New Jersey, his ridiculous COVID-19 quarantine regime. Because they locked him into the home, he got the virus. All it took was one patient to get it. Mm -hmm. They lock everybody in and everybody gets the virus. Mm -hmm. He contracted COVID-19. Did he die from COVID-19? He died, but mm -hmm. not from COVID-19. At the age of 96, he passed away from dehydration because my sister, who lives in New Jersey, was not able to go in and see him every day and make him drink five extra cups of water. Because when you're 96 years old, you don't have a sense of thirst anymore mm -hmm. unless you're almost ready to be dehydrated. So she would constantly supply him with water. The staff would not do that. They didn't have the staff to spend time coaxing my father to drink five extra glasses of water. So he slowly dehydrated to death. His kidneys failed. And then they said, oh, he's dying from COVID-19, so now you can come and visit him. Well, wait a minute. We were locked out before. Why is the virus suddenly not a threat now that you're sure he's about to die? Right. So we went in and we gave, we gave him a compassionate visit, as they called it. We saw that he was dehydrated. He was gasping and mumbling and writhing in pain from being dehydrated. We said, this man is dehydrated. They said, well, okay, you're right. So they took him to a hospital for dehydration, causing renal failure. On an emergency basis, they rehydrated him. He came back to life. I have video of him giving me the thumbs up as he drinks a glass of water. And they gave him, guess what? Hydroxychloroquine and zinc. <laughs> and he no longer had symptoms of COVID-19. Shocker. Unfortunately, his kidneys never came back. Uh -huh. He slowly dehydrated to death. He couldn't even take an IV of water because his kidneys were rejecting it. And you'll end up with uh, cardiac failure from the buildup of fluid. Yeah. So we had to watch my father slowly die of dehydration that they could not do anything about. So he died of dehydration from renal failure. You know what they put on the death certificate? COVID. Respiratory arrest from COVID-19. Yeah. A blatant lie. Yeah. Now, how many times has that lie been repeated? across the United States oh, yeah. in all the different nursing homes and hospitals. Those guys got hit by a bus, COVID-19. Yeah. Poison, COVID-19. Yeah, but then there were the hidden deaths, like my father's. Yeah. All reported as COVID-19 deaths just because he happened to have an acquaintance with the virus, and they gave him hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Yeah. Now, there's a guy who was, uh, this doctor's in, uh, I think it was Minnesota. He was on a Tony Robbins show was back in May, still on YouTube, shocking enough. And he talked about how the hospitals get paid to put that, to code it that way. Well, not only that, they're incentivizing people to go get death certificates mm -hmm. amended because there's a program, a federally subsidized program. You can get a burial subsidy, a funeral subsidy of up to $9,000 if someone died of COVID. 
And there are even instructions on how to get the death certificate changed. Wow. Now, it isn't just changing the death certificate. What's going to happen is when people see that someone has COVID but is dying from something else, they'll tell the hospital administrator, hey, make sure you say COVID-19 on the death certificate so we can get a $9,000 funeral benefit. Mm -hmm. They're incentivizing statistical lies. And now like you look at hospitals and subsidizing funerals. And you look at what's going on now with the jab. It's yeah. the opposite. There's a lady the other day who she was on MSNBC or CNN. She tweets out, hey, I got the jab. My arm's a little sore. Next day, my arm's getting a little bit better. A week later, she's dead. Yeah. <laughs> was that really? Is that really true? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you the link. It was like, she put it on Twitter. They ended up, the family ended up putting up saying we're having a memorial for may she rest in peace. She died later on from the, and they say, oh, oh no, no nothing happened. <laughs> vaccines, uh, which are not approved by the FDA and are only used for emergencies, they're perfectly safe. Yeah, yeah. Hank Aaron, perfectly healthy, takes the, takes the vaccine, dead two weeks later. Oh, well, you know, that's such a rare thing. So why don't you just play a little vaccine roulette? Maybe you'll be one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But again, that, that just goes against the idea of proportionality because the vaccine is not only not efficacious, but potentially harmful. Any argument for proportionality goes out the window, even before you get to whether you want to try to defend remote cooperation with evil, which, as we've just discussed, is not remote. It's direct and immediate. Here's your one. Uh, all the pre all the clerics out there saying to take it to safe, effective, blah, blah, blah. And we just talked about people dying and the word dangerous. In a legal standpoint, how culpable are they? Say people start dropping as a lot of these docs, like, He's been talking about, you know, millions dying two years later down the road from this. What's the clerics to do on the, I mean, the ones that are promoting this? Uh, yeah, my question to a bishop would be, uh, if he's insisting everybody to take the vaccine, well, that's very nice. Have you set up a fund to indemnify the victims of adverse reactions? Will you pay their hospital bills? Will you pay damages to the family that you urged to have vaccinated? Uh, no, of course they're not going to do that. Right, right. In fact, you can't even sue these manufacturers because under the PrEP Act, the Emergency Preparedness Act, uh, they are immune from liability for emergency use authorization vaccines. And the only recourse you have is a federal fund, which is totally inadequate and has almost never paid out uh -huh. on vaccine claims. Because the claim is, oh, it's impossible to establish a causal link between the vaccine you got and you dropping dead 48 hours later. <laughs> So we're in the midst of a monumental, epochal, never-before-seen-in-history fraud on the entire population of the Western world. Right, right. And I don't think I, that's not even melodramatic. It's a statement of the obvious. That sh I, I'm sure people think I have a straitjacket on. I just did a show a couple days ago on the Vatican <laughs> Health uh, the conference where they have a lady, uh, Jane Goodell, who wants to bring the population le level back to the 1500s. Yeah, yep, yep. Uh, and uh, the defender of the moral lysity of the vaccine, uh, he wrote an 84-page pamphlet, and he cites as precedent for the lockdowns some measures that the Pope Gregory the Sixteenth imposed uh -huh. uh, in the 1800s during a cholera outbreak, which lasted three months. There were some military roadblocks, severe penalties for violating the limited quarantine, suspension of certain mass gatherings but not mass, not attendance at church. Uh -huh. And it was over in three months. And that's with cholera, which kills 50 to 
of its victims if it's untreated. And there wasn't any treatment for it back then. So there's really no historical precedent for this. Never in the history of the world have entire populations, the vast majority of the healthy and a tiny minority of the sick, been quarantined together under house arrest. It's ridiculous. And Canada it's the just biggest public policy debacle in the history of modern political systems. Yeah, Canada just went back into it. I just got a photo of a basketball hoop with a garbage trash bag over it. They're not allowed to do anything. Uh, you see, the there's a there's an Anglican church up there that uh, claimed because it's a 10-person rule, they're a media outlet so they can allow 50 people in because they got a TV camera in there. Yeah, they, of course. Well, in the litigation I'm handling with COVID-19 cases, mm -hmm. that's the key to dismantling them when it comes to religion. All the exceptions that they grant for comparable secular activities. So churches might be limited to 25%, but uh, supermarkets are at 50% or 100%. The media have 100% occupancy. Uh, Hollywood has 100% occupancy. Homeless shelters and all kinds of other places. In fact, in California, a church which was at one time restricted totally, no occupancy, and then 25% occupancy. California has since dropped all restrictions after a few lawsuits, and including one that I filed. Uh, at the same time, uh, other places were 100% open with unlimited numbers of people yeah. crowding into them. Yeah. So the courts have said, well, wait a minute. That's disparate treatment of religion. And the Supreme Court five times rebuked California for its pseudo-scientific superstition that indoor gatherings for religion are somehow more dangerous than indoor gatherings for shopping. There's never been any scientific basis for that. Uh, oh, yeah. Walmart. Now it's, all, it's over in California. They finally raised the white flag. Yeah, Walmart's and, been open the whole time. Yeah, yeah. It'll uh, be better in California. It'll be better in Cali when Bruce Jenner becomes governor, right? Oh, please. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, so the lockdowns are unprecedented. None of this has ever been seen before. And I don't think it's any exaggeration to say in human history, not even in communist regimes. Have we seen something quite like this? There was a rapper named Pitbull. I don't expect anybody to go get his CDs or anything like that. He was on a video the other day. He's from Cuba. And he's basically saying that Castro would have... He basically was saying, man, if Castro would have known he could have done this with a virus, man, he would have done this in a heartbeat. He goes, How? I can't believe this happening here. Well, you take a country like Belarus, which has a dictator whose name escapes me right now. Belarus never had any kind of a lockdown. And uh, the dictator of Belarus said, here's our prescription. Drink a lot of vodka and go into the sauna. <laughs> and that's a landlocked country surrounded by heavily populated countries. Yeah. And their COVID-19 infection and death rate was a tiny fraction of the surrounding countries. And we look, of course, the, the state of Florida, we see, uh, never had a, a statewide lockdown. And always allowed businesses to operate, had kids in school for the entire year. And it's a living rebuke to the blue state governors in their tyrannical nonsense. Imagine that, a governor that reads the literature and has scientists on discussing things and makes truthful actions, I guess you'd say, bold actions against the narrative. He's actually following the science. Those who say they're following the science yeah. completely ignore the science. Yeah. For example, on masks. Uh, there's a, a randomized controlled study, the only randomized controlled study was either Sweden or Denmark. Uh, they had control groups of 3,000 people each, 
3,000 people wore masks, 3,000 people did not wear masks. And at the end of the study period, they found a statistically insignificant difference in the number of infections. And that's the only randomized controlled study. And there was another study involving a marine barracks. Uh-huh. Uh, and there, too, it showed that all of the uh, social distancing and masking protocols made virtually no difference statistically in the rate of transmission. You can't stop the spread of a virus. It's like trying to stop the wind. Well, remember when, yeah, if you posted the uh, photo of the box that those masks came in that said on the side of the box, does not stop coronaviruses, you get banned off Twitter, social media, and all that. There was right. the the, uh, the Michigan State head best basketball coach. This was a couple months ago. Goes, I just caught the tweeted out. I caught the Rona. got tested positive for the Rona. I don't know how. I wear a mask all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make a difference. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. You're still going to get the virus because the virus spreads around till uh, what what is called herd immunity is achieved. Yeah, as Dr. Now, I'm not going to get into the science of herd immunity. All right, right. As Dr. Lee senses. Merritt talked about, she goes, we get trained to put these things on. And yeah. if you anybody goes out, out in town, you see these guys pull them out of their pocket, they're in a the rear view mirror. It, I, don't, I honestly, I walk I walk into the grocery store and I just want to go up to the guys that look like they're big and bad going, what are you doing? You yeah, think Tupac really? would wear this? I just don't wear them. I, I'm getting away with it. I go into different stores and I, and I don't wear it, and no one has confronted me. I did have one conversation at, at a local delicatessen about 150 feet from where I'm sitting, 150 steps from where I'm sitting, and uh, the guy behind the counter, not the owner, who's a great guy, some part-time employee with a face shield on. Yeah. It looked like he was riding a motorcycle. He comes out from behind the counter and confronts me, and I said, I have a health exception. It's bad for my health. I can't wear a mask. Well, I'm not going to sell you anything, he said. And I said, really? So uh, on what basis are you doing that? And he wouldn't, wouldn't listen to reason. Then a customer in the store who had nothing to do with the conversation goes berserk, starts hurling F-bombs at me, get the F out of the store. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, you, you, what are you, some kind of Nazi enforcer here? And she starts screaming at me, Nazis, you're an anti-Semite. I said, what? I'm an anti-Semite because I don't like Nazis? <laughs> So I said, you people have lost your minds. I'm never coming back here again. And I haven't been back there in a year. So Yeah, if, uh, we have dealing with a mass psychosis. I haven't worn a muzzle the whole time. I got my mom to fly without one. And uh How? Tom Woods has a I I'll send you this. Tom Woods has a podcast out with a guy that wrote a book on how to get through uh without wearing it. And he get he goes, I get you from step one, enter the door all the way through it. Uh but I told my mom, so basically it's through this. Uh, have some cup of coffee with you throughout the walking through the terminal, and when you get on, eat some beef jerky. As long as you're chewing, eating, they're not a problem. She said, "I never ate so much beef jerky in my life." And she, I told her, "Eat as slow as you can." She said, "No one gave her any grief on the plane." My brother walks through three airports the, uh, a couple months ago, no mask, but he had a couple people who say, "Hey, you don't have a mask on." He said, like, "Thank you," and just kept walking. <laughs> he was calling me up because, man, this is amazing. I'm the only one in here without it. I go, "There you go." <laughs> A, lot, a line that I've used effectively when one of the Karens confronts me, male or female Karens, yeah. is, uh, yeah, I, I understand, but I'm not allowed to wear one mm-hmm. because my conscience won't let me. But I don't tell them that part. Yeah. I, I, the beef jerky thing, that might work, but I tell you, they're going to start cracking down on that. Oh, I'm yeah. spending too much time with that beef jerky. Well, I, I, in fact, I read of a, sto- a story of someone who was called to task for nursing his cup of water. Mm-hmm. Put your mask back on. You're drinking that water for far too long. 
So you might get away with it, then you might not. I mean, I've turned down speaking engagements, uh, and I don't travel anymore. I'm with I you. I'm not sitting in an airport waiting for a plane, waiting during a changeover, then on the plane wearing a muzzle on my face. I can't breathe through the blasted things anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm so I was an anti TSA guy from the beginning, and now the world is a TSA place, and it drives me batty. So yeah. I, yeah. Hygiene theater now goes along with security theater. Yes, yes, yes. The heresy of safety. Well, anyway, getting back to the vaccine. So there really is no serious argument to be made for the efficacy and the necessity of these vaccines for the common good. So why even bother arguing about moral lyseity? But as we've said, there is no moral lyseity in terms of remote cooperation. When the whole enterprise of producing these vaccines is a structure of sin, there's no compelling reason to participate in it. If you could posit a case where the vaccine would be life or death for some child, then you're talking about genuine coercion of the will. Yeah, yeah. And that would be an involuntary act. The moral theologians say involuntary acts are either not sinful or the culpability is so greatly diminished that it might be venially sinful. But to get this vaccine when you're 18 years old or even when you're older, and you can just basically stay home and avoid risks if you're vulnerable, you're immunologically compromised. There's no compelling justification there. It's not life or death. When's part two of your uh, article coming out series? I'm working on it now. It'll be out next week. Okay. And again, this wasn't a critique of the professor. I uh, call him a great historian. Uh, it's just this thing, this thing that's going around the planet has made a lot of smart people Write some bad things or think some dumb ideas. Well, nobody's infallible. You're not infallible. I'm not infallible. Neither is this. Neither is Professor Damon Tay. I, I just he just got this wrong, and I'm not the only one that's saying it. There are a lot of serious critics uh, with doctorates. I'm just a ham and egg attorney, <laughs> so, and they're taking positions against him now. There's going to be a huge backlash on this. Catholics cannot surrender on this issue. If you surrender on this issue, you're, you're accepting all of the therapeutics derived from abortion, and you're accepting abortion as a fact of life. Yeah, we're running out of hills to die on. Uh, yeah. One thing, you don't see a lot of uh, true leadership going on. Hey, I'm wrong on this. Kind of like the DeSantis. He's an outlier. Nobody's being like him. All right, I closed down. Hey, I was wrong. We're reopening. No cleric. Right. I haven't seen any bishop. Obviously not bishop do it. Humility is not found in, around us anymore. We got to keep doubling down, like kind of like Fauci's. Hey, these guys are dying. That's all right. Two, two. Let's go with two jabs. Du uh, triple the mask. We can't. No one in the no one in the church can say, "Hey, I was wrong about this." Let's reopen. Uh, example: uh, Vigano wrote a letter about the reset. It was about a half a year ago. I saw secular guys all over the Twitter feeds. Promoting it, retweeting goes. Here's a Catholic bishop leading, calling out the reset. These guys hate us, hate the church, but they saw a Catholic bishop calling out what they've been calling out, and were ready to get behind him. Right. Well, this is a, again a symptom of the crisis in the church, and in civil society, it's a symptom of the crisis of political modernity. And this has resulted in both cases from the widespread acceptance of false principles. So in politics, it's a false notion of liberty, which is basically majority rule. But now it's majority rule when the majority is controlled by an oligarchy. 
and the opinions of those who dissent are snuffed out by the big tech giants. So the tyranny of public opinion is now being administered by oligarchs. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, in the book, Liberty of the God That Failed, I note how in democracy in America, in the 1830s, de Tocqueville observed there was less freedom of thought in America, even then, than there was uh, among the so-called absolute monarchies of Europe. And back then, he was talking about the tyranny of public opinion enforcing something resembling Christian morality. If you wanted to buck the residual Christian morality that was majority opinion back then, uh, you would be denied a career in public life. Well, the same principle operates today with an anti-theology, which is completely Christophobic, and the same tyranny has snuffed out a defense of the truth. Something even resembling the truth is immediately terminated from its existence in social media platforms. And we're going to be back in the days of Samizdat, the underground <laughs> newspapers, print mediums, you know, circulated in, in, uh, in dark corners with hushed tones. Your yep. comrade, read the truth. <laughs> Ignorance is strength, war is peace. Hey, that's an eight. We're all fan of a fundamentalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're really fundamentalists. A fundamentalist today is someone who believes in being. It's that basic. There's a man and there's a woman. There are two sexes. There's a right and there's a wrong. Uh, in fact, you're a fundamentalist if you believe that there's one fundamental difference between A and B, between yes. one thing and another. Uh -huh. I, I, maybe we could conclude on a funny story. Uh, the great uh, William Mara, mm -hmm. one of the uh, pioneers of the traditionalist movement, was teaching at Fordham University, class in, in introductory philosophy. And he was discussing the principle of non-contradiction. A thing cannot be and not be at the same time and under the same aspect. Ice cannot be boiling water at the same time. So after the lecture, a student comes up to him and says, you're trying to convert us, aren't you? <laughs> so, so the devil recognizes in modern philosophy attacked the idea uh, that uh, there's a created order. And, and in the created order, things have essential properties. Mm -hmm. So what all of this is about at, at bottom is an attack on the created order. And this, this nonsense with COVID-19 and the lockdowns uh, is part and parcel of what we now call political modernity, or what the moderns call liberty, which is actually a form of enslavement. Uh, final question. You bring up spars in the, uh, the uh, article. Can you describe to the readers what that is, or the listeners what that is? Yeah, uh, so the idea that, that uh, we're seeing conspiracies where none exist, and this, this is just, uh, you know, special pleading on behalf of some crazy Catholics. There was a document called the Spars Outbreak of 2025-2028. It was created in uh, 2017 at Johns Hopkins University. And it's a futuristic scenario about what to do during the outbreak of, get this, a novel coronavirus. No one had heard of novel coronaviruses in 2017. This was during the early days of the Trump administration. Now in this book, it outlines communication strategies for dealing with the public during this epidemic of this novel coronavirus and the vaccines that will be rolled out for inoculations against it. And uh, curiously enough, in the fictional scenario, the outbreak begins with churchgoers. 
somebody gets the virus while going to church. And that is the argument that I've been fighting against in federal courts. All these governors in the blue states with their lockdowns have said, well, churches are very dangerous because they're super spreader events. So it's really interesting that this book, uh, this booklet, with its discussion of a hypothetical virus outbreak in 2025, has the outbreak beginning at churches. And then it goes on to talk about how normal methods of confining this virus aren't working and it's spreading everywhere. So we need a vaccine, Corovax, a fictional vaccine. And it goes through all the steps that have to be taken to placate the public and get them to take the vaccine. All kinds of communication strategies, such as controlling social media, breaking into groups that have their own vision of reality, meaning us, uh-huh. and interfering in their discussions with government agents to change the direction of the conversation and the government using social media to promote the vaccine and celebrities taking the vaccine to promote the vaccine. And then what happens when serious side effects develop? It's all in this book. Uh They actually posit a vaccine that causes serious neurological defects down the line months later. And these are very serious adverse instances of bad effects from the vaccine. What to do, what to do, says the booklet. Well, you need a campaign to assuage public fears, and that can include a presidential address in which the president thanks those who succumb to the ill effects of the vaccine for their sacrifice on behalf of the nation. It's all in a book in 2017 to prepare the public for a novel coronavirus outbreak. No, yeah, you see that happening in real time. There's no conspiracy. Last Sunday... that word is abused. Uh, people are supposed to laugh when they hear the word conspiracy. I, 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 I go back with open conspiracy. I think in 1984 spoke of open conspiracy as well. Well, yeah, but what is a conspiracy? Well, the, the Latin der- derivation of the word is to breathe together. You don't need to have meetings in an underground lair mm-hmm. or on a secret island like Jekyll Island to have a conspiracy. You just have to have a bunch of people who breathe together. They think the same way. They act in the same way, and they implicitly understand that they're all moving toward the same goal. And yes, of course, they have meetings, too. They go to the conferences, like the one being held at the Vatican, uh-huh. to uh, discuss strategies. It's all out in the open, but that's still a conspiracy. You don't need to have a formal signed conspiracy agreement. We hereby agree to conspire <laughs> to promulgate a vaccine that will hurt people. So people who uh, toss around the word conspiracy as if it's a joke, don't really understand what a conspiracy is. In the law, it's a very flexible concept. I like saying if they throw it around, they have no idea what they're talking about. I mean, right. last exactly. Sunday, they had what? the uh, Roll Up Your Sleeve special on, on uh, NBC with Obama, uh, the quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks, Russell Wilson, Charles Barkley, Shaq, all about promoting the vaccine. Yeah, for people who are at no risk of serious illness or death, everyone must get the vaccine even though almost no one outside of the narrow cohort of 70 plus people, which is about 10 to 15% of the population at most, uh, everyone must get the vaccine, uh, whether they need it or not. Because again, we discussed this myth earlier, everyone is a carrier, we're all infected. Well, one other point about that, if we're all infected and we're not causing each other to get sick, then we must have some something like herd immunity at this point. <laughs> 
<laughs> Who knew? Nobody's infected and nobody's and, and the deaths are going down and the hospitalizations are going down. What do we need the vaccine for? Nothing. We need it for nothing. I I, I don't want to say it because I, I think all these guys, the eugenic guys on the board over there, have something evil up there. I'll I'll play. I'll put the tinfoil on. <laughs> I, I well, I wouldn't trust any of them as far as I can sling a piano. Yes, I mean, these people are not trustworthy. They are not defenders of the common good. I'm amazed that any Catholic could think that public authority, as it is now constituted, pro-abortion, pro-transgender, pro-militant homosexual anti-american and so forth is a defender of the common good no government attacks the common good as properly understood mm-hmm. well chris appreciate you coming on uh, go ahead and uh, pub your books one more time for everybody well i you know i i do want to promote them because i think you know obviously I, whoever writes a book wants to sell books oh yeah 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 but but these, these are twin studies of problems the first is a study of problems in the church, the great facade. The point of that is these changes we see are a facade. They've never been imposed upon us by the magisterium. No one has to be an ecumenist. No one has to practice dialogue. In fact, as Benedict revealed in 2007, the traditional mass was never actually prohibited. Uh-huh. It was in principle always permitted, he said in his letters to the bishop, bishops of the world explaining Samorum Pontificum. So there's a great facade of changes that appear to have been opposed in the church, none of which we have to accept. You can go on practicing the faith as if Vatican II and the changes after Vatican II never happened. And so that in the dialogue that the Society of St. Pius X had with the Vatican, I would have asked the question, what teaching of Vatican II requires us to believe something different from what Catholics were required to believe before 1962? That's why I wrote the book. Uh-huh. And the problem is these novelties which are circulated in the church behind this great facade, have caused an unprecedented crisis in the church. So that's the crisis in the church. The crisis of political modernity, which I talk about in Liberty of the God that Failed, began with the so-called moderate enlightenment and the philosophy of John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, which basically undermined the conception of the state as a moral totality. You don't just have these organs of government over there and then the people are over here. The whole thing is integrated according to a holistic vision of life, which used to be Christianity. For all its imperfections, for all the corruption that people had in their personal lives, for all the social corruption, for all the defects of fallen man in any form of society, at least you could say of Christendom that Christianity is, as Richard Dawson puts it, uh, not so Richard, Dawson, I forget his first name. Uh, he wrote uh, Christianity in Europe. Uh, Christopher Dawson. Uh, he said that Christianity was the law of the land. Uh-huh. And so there was no abortion, no contraception, no, no sale of pornography, no transgenderism, no militant homosexuality, no legalization of sodomy and so forth. Uh, so you had a minimum level of morality ensured by the integration of Christian values into laws and institutions. In this book, Liberty of the God that Failed, explores how society was detached from the religious influence which first and foremost, of course, was the the influence of the Catholic Church. Uh When that separation was effected through the age of democratic revolution, Leo talks about this in his encyclicals, the body was separated from the soul because the church is the soul of civil society. You ended up with a corpse, and now it's rotting right right before our eyes. Yes. Get you the want book. the whole grim story? Read the book. Yes, <laughs> yeah, fantastic read. Like I said, get get the books. You'll be uh, you'll be better off for it. 
And uh, you write at Catholic Family News and Remnants still? Yep, I still do. All right. Not as frequently as uh, as in previous years, but that's going to. There's a lull now in the litigation, a lot of which is COVID nineteen litigation. So I'm, I'm and, back at it. And you got a big conference coming up soon, right? Uh, you mean the uh, one with Mike Church? Uh, no, Catholic Identity Conference. Yeah, uh, with John Rao, Doctor Rao. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the the Lake Garda in exile. Yes. Every year we had this conference in Italy, Lake Garda, which is at the foot of the Alps, and. Uh, it was a two weeks in paradise. Some people from uh, different disciplines would get together and give academic discussions. I would put on my uh, independent scholar's hat and do something like an academic paper. And he would spend two weeks with fellow Catholics, daily mass, uh, Latin, uh, Latin, Latin, Latin mass, of course, with Gregorian chant and uh, lectures and conviviums every night with your fellow Catholics. In paradise for two weeks. But now Italy is locked down. They've gone insane over there. Italians are rioting in the streets. This is the second year in a row we can't go there. So we're having an event in exile on the Long Island Sound at a very beautiful seminary property. So if you want to be involved in that, if, if it's not sold out already, just go to the Roman Forum. Google the name Roman Forum and John Rao, and you'll find the program for this year's event. It starts on June 28th. Very good. Yeah. Hey, Mike's things next. I think it's this weekend, right? Or next weekend? Oh, uh, yeah. Next weekend. Next weekend. May 1st. Louisiana. So anybody wants to go to New Orleans. I can't go because I'm not going to wear a mask. There you go. So I have to do a video presentation and I'll just show them the video. Yeah. I understand. Well, Chris, thanks for your time, man. You're welcome. Let's do it again sometime. Will do. God bless.